This is the Wicked South Podcast, exploring the dark history of the Murdoch legal dynasty and fascinating criminal cases on both sides of the law. From Wicked Hampton County, the devil is never dead. You fellows can take me out of here and kill me now. Those words were spoken by a Hampton County man who tried to kill his wife and children with an axe in May of 1933. The proverbial devil is always among us, taking shape in many forms, including the beguiling faces of family annihilators. And Alex Murdoch was certainly not the first family annihilator spawned in Hampton County's history. It was the evening of December 8, 1948, in the quaint little town of Estel. The streets, homes, and shops were decorated for Christmas. The holiday spirit filled the air, and the mother and children had walked a few blocks away to see a movie. But he waited for them, and soon the neighbors heard crying and screaming and sounds like a sledgehammer falling. February 22, 1951, a small family farm in the rural Hampton County community of Coney's. The boy killed the mother first, pushed her body into a bedroom closet, then lied in wait for his father with a rifle. The father's body was later found stashed away in an outhouse. As horrific as these crimes of history were for the people who lived them, they give us a glimpse into how and maybe why these horrible events happened. And in this episode of the Wicked South podcast, we discuss why convicted family murderer Alex Murdoch represents the worst of the devils hidden in the human spirit. Hello, friend. That was the voice of historian, journalist, writer, Michael DeWitt. I am Matt Harris, along with Seton Tucker, and we welcome you to the Wicked South podcast, which you can find on Facebook there's been research done by us on two family annihilators in Hampton County and low country history. Both were prosecuted by Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. And then we'll compare them to the modern crime story of Buster's grandson, Alec Murdoch. Let's start, Michael, with the baseball bat slayer. This is a, a very horrible crime. It was certainly shocking and, and horrible back then. It Happened in a small southern town uh, in Hampton County. Uh, Estel's the, currently the second largest town in the, in the county, and it's located in the southern part of the area. And it was such a crime that it made headlines all over the country. It was in uh, a newspaper in, in South Dakota. You know, it was all over. And let me kind of paint this picture for you. It was December, early December, December 8th, 1948. It was almost Christmas. And this was a, a very nice, uh, quaint little town. Back then, it was, uh, you know, even more in its heyday. So you had shops, you had movie theaters, and the town was all decorated for Christmas. The local family uh, that we're about to talk about, the Bowers family, the mother was taking the children to go see a movie. And the father didn't go. The mother was uh, Mae Phillips Bowers. She was 38. And her daughter, Sandra, and her son, Wayne, the daughter was four, the son was seven, you know, perfect little American family. They, they go to see a movie before Christmas. And the father, let me tell you a little bit about him. John D. Bowers, he was a storekeeper. So a lot of people uh, in, knew him. He, he ran a 
little store in Estill with his, uh, with his family. And a lot of people knew him, probably did business with him quite regular. He was not the perfect father, it doesn't appear to be. He was described in many ways. Uh, apparently, he had quite a drinking problem. Uh, people said that he was all right when he wasn't drinking. He had some mental issues. Uh, according to the records, he had been committed to the state mental hospital twice in 1944, but both times he was pronounced sane and he was released back to his family and back to the community. Well, on that night, when his family returned home uh, from the movies, he was waiting for him. He was waiting with a baseball bat. And they said he killed the wife first, and then he killed the children. The neighbors, uh, this is a pretty horrible thing. The, the neighbors later testified that they could hear the, the children crying, hear a dog barking, and it just sounded like a sledgehammer was hitting something. Jeez. And then he just calmly walked out of the house, walked back to his uh, store, and told his brother and his family that he just killed his family. Do we know if he was drinking during this time? Do we? Because, I mean, it was described as he was okay when he wasn't drinking. Yeah, it was brought out in the trial that he was clearly uh, intoxicated. So this happened in December of 1948. So he didn't go to trial until um, October of 1950. In the meantime, uh, he was held in prison. Uh, They sent him to Columbia for evaluation. And uh, we ought to go back and do a separate uh, episode or two on the South Carolina State Hospital on Bull Street. Back then it was called, and well, when it first opened, it was called the South Carolina Lunatic Asylum. But they sent him for the third time to uh, Bull Street. At first, he was pronounced uh, insane. And then a little while later, they said he has recovered from his mental illness and is now fit to stand trial. So they sent him back to to Hampton County to stand trial. And that's when a lot of the details came out. The drinking, his his demeanor before, during, and after the, the murders, his demeanor during the trial, all very chilling. You mentioned it briefly that after he killed the three people, his wife and, and, and two kids, four and seven, immediately afterward, did he go admit that he committed the murders? He went to his brother's store. I guess it was a store he owned uh, together with his brother. And he just walked in and uh, and said, you know, I just killed my old lady. Jeez. And like it was just calm, uh, plain as day. And it was a lot of testimony that went on during the trial. And I'll kind of, it's a quite a long story and I'll kind of hit the highlights. But a doctor from uh, the state hospital in Columbia said that at the time he suffered from alcoholic psychosis which I didn't even know there was such a thing, alcoholic psychosis and acute hallucinosis. And he was still considered a dangerous person. They said if he returned to society and resumed drinking, he would probably continue to react in a similar manner. So he's coming back to Hampton County. He's released from from the mental hospital. He's getting ready to stay in trial. The town doesn't even want him back. The mayor and sure. town of Estill passed a resolution begging the state to keep him in Columbia. Don't bring him back. But they brought him back. Buster Murdoch says, insanity or, or not, the man voluntarily consumed his alcohol. He was going to seat the electric chair. I think his quote was, the electric chair or, or nothing else. And um, so we're in a courtroom. October 1950 term of court, Hampton County General Sessions. Well attended, a lot of people. It took a long time to find a jury that wasn't in some way related or connected to this family. 
And throughout the whole trial, Bowers, who was 43 at the time, sat stony-faced and showed no emotion. Even when they read the verdict, he showed no emotion. Hmm. The first trial was uh, just for the killing of his four-year-old daughter, Sandra. He had entered a plea of not guilty to all three murders, but they tried him for one murder at a time, starting with his daughter. And to me, that was the worst description because she had this head injury, but she didn't die immediately. When police got there, it was a horrific scene. The, well, one of the law enforcement officers testified that uh, that blood was spattered seven and a half feet up the living room Jeez. walls. And they were all dead except the little girl that she had a crushed skull and that she died at a, a Ridgeland Hospital uh, later. Um, you know, keep in mind back then, Hampton County didn't have a hospital, so they had to send her over to the next county over to Jasper County. And she died in, in that hospital. They said that neighbors heard some of this commotion happening. The fact that they didn't possibly call law enforcement maybe brings to mind that maybe this was activity that happened quite frequently. Yeah. Uh, They said in addition to his drinking that he had a a really bad temper, that maybe this was something that kind of happened and uh, and people just kind of overlooked it, didn't. You know, they're they're going the Bowers family. They're going at it again. That old man Bowers is drunk again. You know, so oh, they geez. probably didn't think too much about it. Did they have the bat? Did they bring that into court? Yeah, the bat was used as a murder weapon. Was brought into the courtroom, and there's a uh, quite an interesting story about that. Um, Sam Cruz, local historian, told me that he was the jury boy for for that trial, and I think the uh, the other trial, the trial for the murder of the son and the wife, and that after Buster uh, spoke to the jury, he handed uh, young Sam Cruz the baseball bat. And, the, you know, being a, a seven, eight-year-old boy, he's just sitting there swinging the bat like he's uh, getting ready for a little league baseball game, just swinging the bat in the courtroom, playing with it. And what? Uh, the judge found it so uh, inappropriate that he stopped the trial, uh, called little Sam over, chastised Buster, and uh, they called Sam's mama, Betty Ruth Cruz, to come and pick him up. I'm getting him out of the courtroom. That is bizarre that he was sitting, a seven or eight-year-old sitting in the courtroom and, and handling the murder weapon. That is super weird. We heard about a baby sitting in the uh, courtroom the last episode. Right, crawling around. Or two episodes ago. So yeah. That I guess is it was just, common during the time. What the heck? Well, Buster was known for uh, doing things like that. If you recall, in one, um, we talked uh, a few weeks ago, in one trial in Beaufort, uh, a garden hose was ki- used to strangle and kill a woman. And Buster got the uh, defendant to tie the garden hose around Buster's neck. And he walked around uh, dressing the jury with the murder weapon tied around his neck. So Good Buster Lord. was known for these type of, uh, of often grim, but very effective visual theatrics. And, and I guess there had to be a somewhat, I don't know if it was a debate, but because it seems like it was one-sided when they were talking about whether or not Bowers, the murderer, could tell right from wrong. And they say that, if I remember right, he was having all kinds of hallucinations when they arrested him. That's right. You know, when you look at his background, he had already been committed to uh, to Bull Street twice before. So he was suffering from some mental problems that maybe even when he wasn't drinking, he obviously had some some issues. Well, uh, Dr. Carr T. Laracy, a well-known Hampton doctor, testified during the trial that Bowers told him that someone was trying to kill him with poison gas and that guns were being pointed at him from next door. Now, I don't know if this man was some, a military veteran or not. I never found that in my research. But just keep in mind, this is during 
this takes place uh, right after World War II. So this band came up during a time, you know, in the First World War, uh, they used poison gas. You know, uh, war is constantly in the news. So this type of paranoia might have been uh, quite common for people with uh, with mental illness. You know? mm. Well, I, yeah, but then following it up with killing your entire family, that part not so common. For sure. We often hear cases where, you know, maybe a, a spouse is murdered, but to, to murder the entire family, this, this man was truly a, a family annihilator. He was the only one left alive. The bat is insane. And so the jury deliberates. They go in around 4.40 p.m., return at 10.15 p.m. And what uh, happens? It was a disappointing verdict for buster and uh, maybe for a few other people buster wanted him sent to old sparky the electric chair he got life in prison and the verdict was guilty with a recommendation for mercy he was sentenced to be held to hard labor for the rest of his natural lifetime in the state penitentiary and that's just for that one murder he still had to stand trial for the murder of his son the murder of his wife all right. And he would eventually be convicted on both of those murders. So he had three life sentences and they were much like Alex Murdoch's sentences. They were to be served concurrently. And there was a possibility that he could get out for parole. Jeez. And I do believe he did get out before his death. He didn't spend every last day of his lifetime in prison. 1961, convicted of a second count of murder and again, sentenced to life. So how many years? Let's see, that was 61. When was the other trial? June of 61 and October of 61. So in 1961, he was convicted of, in two separate terms of court, he was convicted of the other two murders. But that was 10 years after the the conviction of the daughter, right? That's right. The sentence was life in prison, but he would not be eligible for parole until he had served 10 years in prison. So they waited 10 years. And then when he became eligible for parole, they went back and tried him for the other two murders. Wow. If you're looking at it on behalf of the, the suspect in prison, kind of a dirty play by the by the state, but obviously well played, well planned to, to make sure that he did indeed spend most of his life in prison. Yeah, they never do that now, for sure. So I, I assume he spent the rest of his life in prison? He filed some appeals, you know, in 1962. He filed an appeal early in 1962 in February, and that appeal was denied. He even appealed it all the way to the South Carolina Supreme Court in uh, October of 62. That was denied. And according to the records, he died in Columbia on March 7, 1979, at the age of 73. Uh, I don't think he died in prison. I think he was released. From talking to some family members here in the area, um, they indicate that he was released, but he never returned to Hampton County. He lived the rest of his life. In, the, in Columbia, in the area where he served most of his prison sentence. I don't know if he lived in half, halfway houses or, or uh, some type of mental facility, but he died in the state capitol. And most interesting part about the conclusion of his story is he was buried, and I've been to his family cemetery in Nixville. It's just a couple of miles from my home. He was buried in the Deloach the, the family cemetery in Nixville, which is not far from Estill. And his wife and children are buried at Beach Branch Baptist Church in, in Allendale, another county, one county over. And I just kind of find it very, very sad, but very fitting that he was separated from his family in life by alcohol, violence, mental illness and prison. And now after death, he remains separated from his family by time, by distance. And that was that was the end of his of his life in, in Hampton County. That's amazing. He even got out at all, beaten 
little kids to death with a baseball bat. Yeah, I don't know that that would happen today. I don't know. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. There is another family annihilator case with some similarities. Seton, tell us about this other case we're going to deal with with Charles H. Mixon Jr. This is one of the most heart breaking cases. It involves a 17-year-old ninth grade student from Barnville, South Carolina. It was high school, and he was 17 in ninth grade, so that kind of, to me, was the first red flag. And he was charged with the murder of his father, Charles Mixon, and his mother, Jeannie Patience Mixon, on February 22nd, 1951. And their bodies were found, uh, the mother was found in a bedroom closet. She had a wound to the back and two wounds to the head, and the father was found in an outhouse. So looking at this timeline, it's a little confusing. Law enforcement says they believe that this incident happened before sundown on February 22nd, and that was a Wednesday, and the bodies were not found until Thursday. And according to reports, an older married daughter came to check on the parents, and this was at, at 10 p.m. at night, which I, I kind of found that time frame to be unusual. Did they think something was amiss? Law enforcement came, arrested him at 3 a.m. Matt, what do you think about this time frame? So, okay, so they they decide that they were killed, the parents were killed on Wednesday afternoon. The, the Before sundown, around 3 p.m. And, and then the bodies were found late Thursday night, but maybe she came over because she hadn't heard from them. Right, and whatever so maybe they, that she was would alarmed. Be. And then... In the wee hours of Friday morning, that's when they arrest Charles Mixon. At 3 a.m. 3 a.m. So it just seems unusual that she came over at 10 p.m., but he wasn't arrested until 3 a.m. Michael, though, you read where he had actually left the scene. That's right. You know, we'll, we'll talk about his altered mental capacity a little later, but obviously he knew he had done something wrong or he was going to be in trouble because he apparently left the scene. The, the, his older sister came uh, worried, came that Thursday night to check on the family. You know, I don't know what kind of telephone 911 system they had in, in 1951, but apparently they summoned the police. And the boy wasn't there when police arrived, but they called him around 3 a.m. Friday morning. He was coming back. He was coming out of the woods, coming out of a nearby field. And they called him and arrested him. And uh, that's when he confessed and, and told police that, that yeah, I, I did it. I, I killed both of them. The twenty-two caliber rifle. And then he even showed where he had dragged the body of the father after shooting him. Uh, That's right. This whole situation doesn't make sense to me why he was dragged. I feel like there's some missing puzzle pieces. And initially, Mixon was in the Hampton County Jailhouse, but was sent to the state hospital for further evaluation. Yes, another similarity with the Bowers case. See. Uh, was sent to uh, Bull Street, the South Carolina Mental Hospital, for a 30 days evaluation. And the findings were kind of telling in a way, but they said he wasn't legally insane, but he, that he was very mentally deficient. He was dull. He had no evidence of psychosis, no mental disorder, but he was very dull. 
basically had the IQ and the mental capacity of an 11 year old, even though he had just turned 18 at the time. And that's one of the things that the defense brings up in the trial that there's kind of he's he's in this little middle ground of they say that he is sane, but the line was between legal sanity and legal insanity was pretty close. And what you have to remember in 1951, mental disability was looked at in a whole different way. I mean, they're using words that you never use now, like dull and things like that. They, just, they, they had no idea how to treat those with intellectual disabilities like we do now. The thought of sending somebody with intellectual disabilities to a mental institution is in, insane, for lack of a better term. Right now, we would never consider doing that. Well, and it just makes you go back to the sister who came to check on the parents. They knew that their brother had disabilities. Checking on the parents, but also knowing that this brother was probably not really capable of caring for himself. I mean, he had the intellectual ability of an 11-year-old. So, yeah, I want to make sure he was okay, probably, if he hadn't heard from anybody. So they went to the 30-day observation, and uh, I think, was it, was it Buster Murdoch's recommendation? that uh, he be checked out in the state mental hospital. Yeah, it was. Okay, so he does that. Um, and a 1,000 people were present at the double funeral on the 24th at Sand Hill Baptist Church. Um, Obviously, must be loved members of the community if a 1,000 people are showing up for this funeral. And another thing, if you look at the court documents, is that similar to the last case we just discussed— they had difficulties sitting a jury because of the connections of this Mixon family in the community. Yeah, there are some Hampton County families that, you know, they're, they're kin to everybody. I mean, um, you know, they're, they're large families, they're intermarried, so they really had a hard time uh, picking a jury, having this trial. And it's kind of chilling when you think about that double funeral they had and a thousand people attended. I kind of picture I was there at the funerals for Paul and Maggie and then uh, later for Randolph. And it just kind of some eerie similarities there. Just one of those crimes that not just they don't just impact that family. They kind of shake the whole community. Well, and sitting through the jury selection of the Murdoch trial, you know, every question, if you've had any relation to the Murdoch family or just anybody involved in this case, it was very difficult to find people who didn't have any sort of connection to the family or any of the witnesses. The name that we've seen in some of the other stories is uh, B.T. DeLoach. Um, he, he was a clerk of court, right? And because he's related to the family, he had to be excused and bring in a new clerk of court. Seton, June 1951, the trial of Mixon begins, but it was just for his father's murder, right? Initially, he was tried for his father's murder, and once he was found guilty of that, he went ahead and pled guilty in the murder of his mother as well. And and the story changed a little bit once he pled guilty and confessed to killing his mother. The story started one way with him, but then on cross-examination, it changed. Explain. He testified that he didn't remember shooting his father. But then on cross-examination by the solicitor, uh, Mixon contradicts himself. And he's asked if he remembers shooting his father, and he says yes. You wonder if we're not getting a whole story here, right? It seems to be a lot of missing holes, and you got to think back to that time and, again, how people saw people who had the intellectual disability like he had. 
Buster Murdoch was really arguing for electric chair. He was saying that there are too many families that have been killed in Hampton County and that electrocution was really the only way to stop it. That's pretty harsh on a, the person who has a, the intellectual capability of an 11-year-old. Again, something that would not happen in this day and age. And I have reached out to a family member, hoping that we hear back, to try to find out what the motivation is. Well, to, um, to piggyback on, on the Buster Murdoch connection before we, we jump into that, you know, Buster was known for, you know, his hardcore attitude toward the death penalty. Um, the youngest person ever put to death in South Carolina, I think, was 14. And, uh, and yeah, Buster, if Buster would have had his way, he, he wanted to uh, electrocute the young man. But I think we've seen in a lot of these family annihilator cases, they, they usually, and, you know, look at Alex Murdoch's case, they usually end up with life as opposed to death, even though the crimes are more heinous, I, I think. Um, than killing a stranger. But I like to put myself in these characters. And a lot of this is just, you know, kind of informed speculation. But you've got a, a young man who's 18 years old and he's in the ninth grade. So he's, you know, he's not at a full mental capacity at, at, with his peers. So maybe there was some bullying going on. Maybe, maybe people treated him like he was inferior. Maybe there was, and this is wildly speculative, but you know, maybe there was some type of, of, of abuse we, and, you know, it's not something you want to drag out into the public and, and blame the victims. You know, these could have been the greatest parents in the world. Obviously, they, nobody deserves to get murdered, but there could have been some underlying factors there that we just don't know about. But I think his mental capacity, you know, it affected his decision making, but I think it also affected the way people around him treated him. And that could sure. very well be a factor. Well, and this is very different than the last case. If a father who is a drunk and shoots his wife and children, that's way different than this 17-year-old with diminished mental capacity. Yes. The judge is somebody we've heard before, right? Judge J. Henry Johnson, who handed down a sentence of life to be served either on the Hampton County Public Works chain gang or in the state penitentiary. Why do we know the name Judge J. Henry Johnson? Uh, Seton, wasn't he the same judge that sentenced our pedophile preacher that we had in, in uh, last week's episode? That's what it I was. I believe. And wasn't it with his 30 years difference? So he spent a long time on the bench. Yes. That's right. This must have been toward the end of his career. They give him the life sentence, and then Mixon's attorney entered a guilty plea in the killing of the mother. When Mixon's attorney was talking, he quotes some scripture, and he's pleading for mercy. He says... You know, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And I believe the jury also recommended mercy. Michael, how does this work? I think the way it works in capital cases like that is when the jury first deliberates, they decide guilt or innocence. And then if they, you know, choose to recommend mercy, then usually the judge will sentence him to life or some sentence that is, that is short of death. If they don't recommend mercy and they recommend the death penalty, then the jury must convene again in a separate session and decide if that suspect gets life or death. So, and again, another similarity to the Bowers killing in, in Estill, the jury came back. And I, I guess you, you kind of think, you know, somebody kills their family. They, they you know, they have suffered too. And one day they're going to realize their family's gone and they did that. And uh, maybe that's why they recommend mercy in cases like this, but very similar, both cases, recommendation for, for mercy. And I found it really interesting because he died at the age of 45 
in, I think, a Lexington County Hospital. And in his obituary, his sisters are listed. And he, I think he came back to Hampton County to be buried. That's right. Uh, Sand Hill um, Cemetery, not far from where the family lived. So it's kind of just like John D. Bowers. He's buried right here in his family cemetery in Nixville. This young man uh, did this horrible thing. He spent a great deal of time in, in Columbia. And in the end, after death, he returned home to be buried. I don't know if he's buried with his family, how close, but he's buried in a family cemetery right here in Hampton County. Uh, even, I guess, even killers return home one day. We need you to make a field trip to these different cemeteries and take some pictures for us. Right. Well, it seems to be there's some sort of forgiveness uh, by family members. In this case with Mixon, the, the sisters are mentioned in the obituary. They're both Bowers and Mixon end up in family cemeteries. So there, there appears to be some level of forgiveness by the family. That's how I took it, but who knows? Yeah, we're... Jumping to that conclusion. So let's compare the family annihilator, Alec Murdoch, and these two cases. Michael, what jumps out at you? Well, Seton and I kind of divided this up. I took a, you know, a dive into the Bowers case, and she took a deep dive into the um, mixing case. And we saw a lot of similarities between those two, even down to um, it was a state senator, Brantley Harvey, that defended the, uh, the young boy, Mixon. Whereas uh, in the case of Alex Murdoch, you had a state senator, Richard Harpootlian, famous attorney defending uh, this family annihilator. So there are lots of similarities. Uh, John D. Bowers was was driven by excessive alcohol use. And no doubt Alex Murdoch was affected by um, excessive opioid use. Maybe not to the level that he claimed when he lied in court, um, but he certainly uh, affected by his uh, his use of, of pills. Sure. But I think the biggest thing is the contrast. Maybe it's not for us to judge. Maybe it's for uh, God or a jury. But I see one family annihilator that was driven by mental illness and alcoholism. I see one family annihilator that was affected by mental deficiencies, wasn't as mentally developed, and maybe had other, you know, borderline things that made him borderline sane or insane. And then we have Alex Murdoch. Well, how would you guys describe his motivations and his crimes? Seton, Matt, what do you think? I mean, obviously, it seems that Alec Murdoch's crimes were monetarily motivated, which we don't see that in either one of these cases. Yeah, more greed, desperation, that sort of thing, as opposed to a guy who has had been in mental institutions, as they called him in those days, and had an alcohol, was an alcoholic. And then we don't know the, the depth to the uh, disabilities that Mixon suffered. I also want to talk about both Mixon and Bowers were described as being very flat and non-emotional during their testimony. And Alec Murdoch appeared to be very emotional during the hearing of Maggie and Paul's murder. He was crying and, mm-hmm. you know, snot was coming everywhere. Yeah. I, it seemed to be a little bit different, whether that's theatrics or I, I don't know, but it's definitely starkly different than how the cases of Mixon and Bauer were described. True. True. Well, I think the, the older cases, you could tell even in the courtroom that there was something mentally going on that somebody's not just going to sit in a courtroom and show no emotion 
uh, either they're a stone cold killer or there's some type of mental something going on that they're just blocking that. Whereas Alex, I think to me, he was more premeditated. Like he, he planned this, this was mm-hmm. deliberate. This was planned. I don't know if he planned it for a week or a month or a year, but he orchestrated this. Uh, it wasn't voices in his head. It wasn't in an alcoholic fog. He, he, he did this on his own planning and, in the courtroom, I think that was also the crying, the emotion. That was also part of, of his orchestration. Well, I've got to show the, the, the jury and the TV cameras that I'm a grieving father. I, there's no way I could have done it. It was all part of a premeditated plan. I think that's a, a big difference right there. I'd have to agree with you. I would think that in the Bowers and Mixon cases, these seem like they were not planned in any way. Like these seem like a, a snap. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the bottom line is I've studied these these old case files, this history, and I've sat in that courtroom and I've studied Alex Murdoch's files and I've seen him in the courtroom. To me, he is more evil, more diabolical than these other people. Same type of crime, uh, you know, all of them brutal. You got a baseball bat in one, the Mixon boy shot his family, his mother multiple times. So the same level of violence, pretty much, but he was more premeditated, more deliberate, and there was material gain. He was either hoping to to hold on to his ill-gotten gains or cover them up. And to me, Alex Murdoch is more evil, more diabolical than, than any uh, mass killer I've seen in, in uh, Hampton County history or low country history so far. We have received great response on our Facebook page. We've gotten a lot of new followers and people really love the book giveaway, Michael. So thank you for donating that. We also had a really cool uh, review on Apple, which says, we really love Matt and Seton from their podcast. And Michael is a fantastic addition. He is such a way with words and he uses his talent to weave us through history. So thank you for leaving us that review. Very nice. I agree. So continue to reach out to us on the Wicked South Facebook page. And uh, Impact of Influence, that uh, podcast still going strong. We have some tie-ins with the case that Michael brought up of the Charlotte Strangler, who wasn't the Charlotte Strangler when uh, Randolph Murdoch let him loose uh, in Hampton County, but he eventually became Charlotte Strangler. So you can check that on Impact of Influence. We'll have more on that on this podcast as well. So check out Michael DeWitt on the socials, as uh, well as the two that we just mentioned, Impact of Influence and the Wicked South. And we'll talk soon, friend.